Hooper now offloads. Oh, so close, still short. Glaubanga. There he is! He's over! Hello and welcome to Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. We are diehard rugby fans having a weekly chat about all things Aussie rugby. We're real, family-friendly and positive, so get involved. Get involved. Now, look, we've got a really exciting uh, chat coming up today, but before we dive into some of the ifs and what's and everything that's going on with rugby, uh, Mitch, how about you run through our social platforms? Awesome. All right, so we're on Instagram at hashtag pick underscore drive underscore rugby. We're on Facebook at the Pick and Drive Rugby podcast page. And we're also on Twitter at pick underscore drive rugby. So please do get involved. Give us a like and a follow on all of those uh, platforms. And yeah, if you've got anything you want to talk about or just want us to talk about, send them through on either of either of those platforms because we love to hear from you and uh, we love to hear from fans and to get amongst it all. I'm, I'm very excited. And again, I've got a lot of time spent sort of idle. So if there's questions on Twitter, I'm very keen to just start attacking them uh, ravenously in a positive manner too. Um, now look, this evening, what we're going to talk about is uh, the Spring Tour Squad, which has been announced uh, last Friday. So we'll go through and have a look at some of the uh, inclusions and exclusions and who makes up that uh, group of players. And we're also going to be joined by Simon Strong to talk about the game line analytics and just a, a few of the um, things that are encouraging the Wallabies into this uh, recent run of form and looking at, well, how much of these buzzwords cohesion and that, that teamwork index, how much of that is actually factoring into the success of the team. Now, before we get to that spring tour squad, we got a, a question and a comment from Krishan uh, coming in. And I think it's really worthwhile to dive into this. It um, says, hey, boys, got a question for you tonight. Since sport docuseries like The Last Dance, Drive to Survive, and AFL slash NRL are pretty popular now, how would you approach one about Aussie rugby? Do you think it would engage new fans? Do you think Stan could be an option? Is Rev young and talented enough to play jock in said series? <laughs> Cheers. Keep up the great work, guys. <laughs> I can only speak for that last point because I am younger than jock by, I think, three years. Uh, talent. I mean, if anyone's seen me play for Winning Bugs or East Tigers, <laughs> uh, they'll know full well that I'm not. But I think the other things are interesting because all we need in rugby is more recognition. Now that we're winning, now that it's a positive and a good news story, the more we're talking about this and the more that we're getting involved, I think, the better. So, um, Andrew, how do we go about getting something like this going? Do you think Stan would be a great spot to, to show um, all that rugby has to offer? I think Stan would be a good option for it, but also to just be using the connections that they have, obviously, with the Nine Network, um, because there is the issue of it being behind the Stan paywall. Um, but really for me, I think that there is an incredibly exciting documentary that's already in the works for Australian rugby. Uh, so it's kind of the rival to the, or the equivalent for the last dance. Um, and it's coming out from gold digger rugby, our good friend, Matt Durant over at gold digger rugby. And so he has been creating this documentary titled gold digger, the search for Australian rugby, which by all, um, accounts will hopefully be available to people late uh, in this year although that's still to be confirmed and really what it's doing is going to be giving a hard hitting look into the decline of Australian rugby the reasons for that and in the path forward 
into greatness yet again. Uh, he's got a recent trailer that's come out and incredibly excited to see that. It's got a lot of the old um, stars of Australian rugby from the last kind of 10, 20, 30 years within there. Uh, friend of the pod, Benny Alexander, makes an appearance in it too, which is super fun. And I think that that'll be really great at generating some more interest within Australian rugby, particularly because it will connect people who may have become a little bit disconnected over the last five or 10 years by seeing the faces of the people that maybe they used to support and idolise. And I think that's such an important point is he's grabbed all these players because, you know, people in, you know, my parents' generations and the ones in between are definitely looking at players like John Eels and George Griggins, probably the household recognisable names. And they may not be able to remember that many in between sort of that early 2000s and now. So to have the recognition of players like that, I think is really important. Um, Mitch, just going through this again, because obviously we've um, had a lot of discussions with Matt um, from Gold Digger Rugby throughout the podcast and through doing his. Um, and we probably only met him after the filming had finished. So we don't feature in it. But oh. if we were to feature as um, reenactments of three players, who do you think we might suit? Who, who would we be cast as, do you think? Would we individually be cast as? I'm going to go with... Yeah. I'm, liking, I'm liking Krishan's shout it there. So I'm giving Jock to you, Rev. I think you could pull him off quite well. You're, you're a Queensland boy as well. So you've got the jaw for it. Yeah, that's there right. We go. So oh, you're playing Jock. Uh, Ando talks enough about this player that he's got a man crush that is unrivaled anywhere uh, in the world rugby. So I'm, I'm thinking Ando could play Ned Hannigan, maybe just grow the hair out a little bit. Um, got to get those curly Goldilocks going. Yeah, you can do it, Ando. You've got it. You've got it down pat. I think that I could play maybe Ben Alexander. Oh, I like it. Or Ben Robinson, even. One of the props. Any I prop. was thinking the fat cat. I was, <laughs> yeah. I was also thinking Al Baxter for some reason, mate. I don't have the jaw for it. Al Baxter vibes. Al Baxter's got like that Superman mm. jaw. He's too good looking for... I, I don't think I could pull it off. I'd love to play Ben Robinson in any sort of show, just so that when it comes up as Ben in uh, quotes, fat cat Robinson, like just, <laughs> it's such a great nickname. I, I think that's one of the all time greats. Um, so I, I, I like that casting and I will just say, um, Krishan didn't put that bit in about me. I, I did type that while we weren't looking. Oh, really? so, <laughs> <laughs> so, so apologies for uh, hijacking your question there, Krishan, but I thought this is a great opportunity. Um, and the fact that Mitch and Ando, um, you know, thought of as authentic, that, that speaks volume. So thank you guys. Thank you. Um, I love that. <laughs> now, now that we've gone through that, let's have a look at probably the bit that a lot of us are quite keen to discuss and break down, which is that uh, spring tour squad. Um, we've named 37 players to play uh, Japan and then Scotland, England and Wales in that order. So it is a bit of an unorthodox tour, but it's a really exciting tour uh, in that it's a chance to play nations that are of a similar ilk, but um, also quite different. So it does give us a nice chance to go through it. Um, and uh, just to go back to you, we can go through some of the specifics in the list later, but was there someone that really stood out as, wow, I'm excited to see them play? Uh, Izzy Parisi. 
without a shadow of a doubt. So that was my wow. I'm incredibly excited to see him play. His shoulder injury was just so cruel in its timing. He was absolutely devastating for a well-beaten Waratahs team. And I was just so excited to see if you could carry that form across into the Wallabies setup. Uh, The player that I was a bit wow and surprised was Lalakai Fakedi. Getting across another um, New South Welshman. Um, so, yeah, that was a player I was very, very surprised to see going on this tour. I think that's pretty fair because, you know, we've got, I think, five or six centres or at least players capable of playing centres in this squad, maybe even more. It does seem like a particular position of strength, but perhaps leaning a little bit into Karevi's injury and maybe um, the time that Passam is spent out of the squad. Uh, Mitch, same for you. Were there other players that you're really excited to see or maybe one that you're upset isn't going over? The players that I'm excited to see included because we weren't really sure 100% either way whether they were going or not were the three big international signings. So Sean McMahon, uh, Samu Krevi and Quade Cooper. Great to see that they're been included in this in this tour and we're going to be able to give them more time in the gold jersey this year. Um, the three players or two players that came in, three that have come in from Japan, uh, from Europe, sorry. So Tolu Latu, um, Rory Arnold, and uh, the last one is Will Skelton. Skelton. I can't believe I forgot that name. Um, I'm just scrolling through the list now going, where are they? Where are they? Um, Really excited to see them back and see what they can do. The player that I'm disappointed didn't get a shot at this tour, and I've still got question marks over why we brought Tolu Latu back, is Dave Parecki. I think being an Australian-based player, playing for the Waratahs, being committed to the Waratahs for the next few seasons, it would have been a great opportunity to see him given a shot uh, at the Wallabies instead of bringing a player like Tolu Latu back. Tolu, for all reports, he's been playing quite well in France and he was playing well at the 2019 World Cup before he left, but he still had a lot of off-field issues and um, some sort of drink-driving charges and those kind of things, which really doesn't kind of gel with this squad or this atmosphere that Dave Rennie is really trying to put together for this Wallaby side. So we, we do know that hooker and fullback are two positions that we have massive question marks over at the moment. So I know that Dave Rennie is looking for that long-term hooking position that will lead us through to 2023. Um, we'll see this year whether Latu is that option and maybe hopefully next year, Dave Parecki gets a shot to um, see what he can provide. Now, one of the things that I'm keen to do, just because Big and Drive, we like to um, be the shepherd. You know, we're not just following in the footsteps of others. We're setting the light. We're blazing the trail. And so I've seen a few squads where they've listed people alphabetically or they might have listed them based off the positions they're in. And to us, that's a bit boring. What we're going to do is we're going to split uh, the team or the squad, I guess, nearly in half because we've got um, a list of how many games they've played under Dave Rennie. And out of the 37 players, 18, so pretty much half, uh, have played over half the games that Rennie has been in charge of, and the others have not. And there's actually quite a gulf between the players that have and haven't. So it's interesting to see the team in that lot. So I'm just going to run through some of them, I guess, in order of the amount of matches they've played, and we can sort of look at the players in there. And as we do, we do get a bit of a feel for which players are locked in they seem really committed to this squad and Rennie's, you know, pretty much ticket to the World Cup and which ones he's still trying to decide. So 
Going through um, the top few names, no real surprises. We've got Michael Hooper, Matt Phillip, Taniela Tupo, Reese Hodge, James Slipper, Marika Corombetti, Rob Valentini, Alan Alalatoa, Angus Bell, Nick White, Jordan Pattaya, Tate McDermott, Hunter Paisami, Valau Fyunga, Darcy Swain, Len Ikatau, Jake Gordon, and Andrew Kellaway. So they are our experienced uh, players. They've all played at least nine games out of the 16 from Rennie. Um, so especially considering that, you know, those last uh, three, um, Kellaway, Ikatau, and Swain, given they all started this year, there's a really impressive effort, and I think it shows what uh, key cogs they are to this team. Underneath them, uh, the gap actually extends. No one has played seven or eight games under any. These guys have all played six or less, including seven that have yet to feature for Dave Prenny. So we've got Lockie Swinton, Pete Samu, Filippo Dungunu, Tom Wright, James O'Connor, Samu Karevi, Isaac Rodder, Quade Cooper, Fleti Kaitu'u, Rob Liotta, Tom Robertson, and Sean McMahon. Uh, they're joined by the only players that have not yet featured under Rennie, but uh, we can already tell some of these guys will. Connell McInerney, Tolu Latu, Lalakai Fakedi, Rory Arnold, Will Skelton, Isaiah Parisi, and Pony Farmasuli. Um, looking at that list of names, I, I'm blown away, I think, by how Rennie's been able to put this squad together because he's missing so many Reds players, which obviously breaks my heart, yet the squad still looks so strong. Um, to me, one of the most hard done by players is Pony Farmasuli, who's been included in every squad, has had a few niggles, but has yet to grab a minute. So I do hope that he gets a bit of action at some point. Um, is there a player that you think deserves a few more minutes from this list specifically, Ando? Oh, look, it's, I think it's a question of injuries have often crueled the chances of some players. So I know that you just mentioned that Pony's had a few niggling injuries that have kept him out of the team. We had the similar with Felipe Donguni. So he was injured in what, the first game of this season? of this international season. Um, and so he would have got more minutes. Uh, I, so I'm not sure if there's any player that should inherently feel hugely unlucky or that I think is very in, deserving of more minutes than what they've had. I've, I'm sticking with the in Rennie we trust mantra <laughs> in that there have been some decisions that I haven't always seen the logic of, but it turns out that Dave Rennie seems to know a bit more than I do about rugby. Uh, so... Don't sell yourself short. Oh, thank you, thank you. Um, so, yeah, well, no, I'm, I don't have anybody. Sorry. Um, Mitch, we've seen a lot of milestones under Dave Rennie, um, such as Hooper earning his 100th cap. Uh, we've seen the return of Quaid and Karevi. We've seen all these players, um, you know, getting these really nice touches. I think quite recently was um, Alatoa and Hodge hitting their 50th. What would be, I guess, a nice moniker or a nice milestone for this team to reach is there a certain player that you just want to get to that sort of you know double digit stage like a Callaway or Ikatao or is there a player that you're keen to see get that extra boost yeah I think Andrew Callaway is one of the players that's really stood up for the Wallabies so far this year so he's already showing that he's going to be a 50 if not more test cap Wallaby uh he's only on what 10 or 9 so far this year but yeah. it, he's going to grow exponentially over the next few years. He's just been that good this year. So I, I'm looking forward to seeing him rack up a few more test caps. Um, I'd like to see Filippo Dalgunu get another shot at the wing. We The wings we've had this year have been fairly settled and have performed really well. 
But I just think Filippo brings something different. To the, uh, he's a different player to both Marika and to Kellaway. Um, so I'd like to see him get a little bit more game time. Uh, but apart from that, I just I think we need to just focus as a team on getting as many game getting as many wins on this tour as possible. And for me, uh, coming home three from four would be a good result. Wow. And I think there's a lot of um, Australian fans probably feeling that right now too. And um, obviously we, we sort of treat the weight of results uh, differently. Like if we lose to England, but win the other three, that's probably expected. But maybe if we beat England and say lose to other games, it's maybe more acceptable because we claim the big scalp. So it does become interesting when we start sort of weighing up all the possible variations. Um, one of the things that does strike me a little bit is we're still in negotiations to see what the ghetto law or changed or expunged or whatever it happens to be is. Um, and as I'm looking at the numbers, Tolo Lato currently has 19 caps, Will Skelton 18. Do we just presume that they get enough caps to get them to 20 just in case that's the sort of arbitrary number of caps they get? Or are they only getting picked if it's based on form? And I'll throw that one to you. Yeah, look, if they pick to get the numbers up, then Dave Rennie is not the coach I thought he was. Um, I see him as putting, as trusting in the players to do the job and to not have to require that type of like shenanigans or that that selection shenanigans to um, secure things down a track. He's a national coach. I, I bet that there'll be some caveat within whatever amendments they make, maybe the Arnold Amendment, if we go down that path, of... Um, the coach has the right to pick two in overseas-based players um, to join a team in any international window and outside of the um, cap limit. I think that will probably be somewhere within whatever amendment they make. And so if if they were to just go, oh, yeah, let's get him to 20 caps because that's what we're going to reduce it down to, I'll be pretty pissed because I think that's completely unfair to other players that might deserve to be there on merit over those other players. Um. Mitch, one of the things that I want to throw out, because I've, I've been trying to get an answer for this myself as well, is obviously with Latu being brought in, we're trying to find our next hooker. Um, we've developed, I think, four really top-quality locks this year, um, but now we're throwing Skelton and Arnold in there. And Karevi's just added a completely new dimension to the centres. Is there a positional uh, combination that you'd really like to see nailed on this tour? In terms of personnel or in terms yeah. of position? Yeah, just in terms of the personnel, because I know that we're still trying to find our best six, our best fullback. There's a few positions that we're just not quite set on. Is there one position in particular that you'd really like to see nailed this tour? Yeah, I think the centres are a big one in terms of what do we do if we don't have Quade Cooper or Samu Karevi to fall back on? So at the moment, we, we're sort of expecting it to be Hunter Baisami and Lenny Kitao, who have been great. Um, but we've also got the new uh, Waratah pairing coming in of Lalakai Fouquetti and Isaiah Parisi. So I would not be surprised if Dave Rennie starts both of those plays in the centres against Japan, purely because they've been training together in Sydney for the last, what, three months um, and had very minimal interaction with the Wallabies team. So I would not be surprised to see that happen. Um, and if it works, that would be a great backup to have a good, solid center pairing that comes from one super side that's going to be there if we don't if we can't call on Samu Krevi to come back from Japan. Uh, I would also really like to see someone step up and take hold of that 15 jersey 
I think we've got 14 and 11 really nailed down at the moment, but that 15 jersey is still up for grabs at the moment. So, so many different potential options there. So many players who have had time there but haven't really proven that they're the out-and-out choice for that starting fullback position. Um, So if we come back from this tour with a really good indication of who our best centre pairing is or who our backup centre pairing is, should we not have Samu Krevi available and who's going to be our first choice 15, um, I would say we've had a great tour. I think that's pretty fair because it has been a bugbear, um, I guess, all year just trying to nail that down. And look, we do want to get to our chat with uh, Simon, so we will wrap this up. But let's just finish with, as a math teacher, I like numbers to be nice and even, and 37 is just it's prime. It just it sticks out. It's a little bit um, unsettling. So we've got three people here. Let's pick one person each. If we could add to the squad, we would just to get it to a nice round 40. So right, Ando Os- again. <laughs> easily answered. Mitchell Foster. I'm actually joking. Come back to me later. Okay. Oh. Um, Mitch, who would you like to see added in? Dave Precky. I'll just keep. Nice. I'll just keep spelling, selling his his gospel. Uh, Dave Rennie yep. will eventually listen, and and he'll. Be Let's stuck. get five hookers in there. I, I... Yeah. Why not? Right. <laughs> we we can't have well. that many hookers. Too many. Um, well, I will let you uh, wrap this up, Andrew, because I'll I'll say Harry Wilson. I, I think he's still. I've, I've been saying it for five weeks now. I still think he's one of our. Uh, four best back robbers. So I think he does find a way somewhere in the 23. Maybe that changes with Sean McMahon back. I haven't seen enough of him to, you know, stake that full claim yet. But um, the fact that we are got this much depth is really exciting. Um, so say, he would be one that I'd add in. I will say on that that whole theme of leaving players behind to give them a, pre, a proper preseason, I, that doesn't sit well with me in terms of longevity for the Wallabies. I don't, we've been talking about it for years that Wallabies coaches have been unimpressed with the Wallabies players when they show up in camp in the middle of the end of the year and they say they're not fit enough. So to all of a sudden release a player or a handful of players who are up and coming, who are potential Wallabies for the future and say, have a good preseason at home. You know, we don't, we're not producing the environment or the strength and conditioning systems that are required for international rugby. So I don't think that personally, this is my personal views, I don't think Harry Wilson's going to grow as a player staying in Queensland and playing and um, and training in Queensland base than he would more so if he was with the Wallabies, with the strength and conditioning coaches over on tour, learning calls, working out line-out numbers and calls and things. So to use that as an excuse to say he's going to improve his game by staying home doesn't sit well with me. Especially while the... You're looking at... There, sorry, Rev, is um, the development of the Super Rugby system over the last couple of years and the fact that that complaint was particularly a checker complaint um, and it hasn't been as prevalent. And so I just wonder if the talk about the centralisation of rugby in Australia is something that's been almost from a bottom-up process in that Dave Rennie and the assistant coaches have already fermented really good relationships with the Super Rugby teams that they have the trust to be able to send players back to the Super Rugby clubs and trust that a preseason will develop them well. Rennie still wasn't happy with the well, with the, the super sides, though. Remember, he he really grilled them that first two weeks, and we had a number of injuries that came out of it. And I can recall sitting on this podcast saying Rennie's working them too hard. We had injuries to James O'Connor, Tate McDermott, and um, did Vunuvalu do another injury in camp as well? So like there was these big names that were dropping just because Rennie was pushing them really hard. So. 
I don't know if we're necessarily sold on that one, but anyway, we'll wrap it up, move on. Yeah, I'm keen to talk to Simon and get some more insights into how this is all going to look. Uh, I didn't get to name my player. Ryan oh. No, that was a joke. I mean, actually, Ryan Wanigan is my final answer. No, uh, Luke Moraham. Yeah, nice. Yep, nice. That's who I want. And that answers our fallback question right there. So let's dive straight into the chat with someone. Let's get some understanding about occasion because I know I've been using it flippantly. I'm keen to keen to get that uh, down pat so I'm not just sounding like a goose on here. All right, okay. let's go. Let's go. All right, we now move to an incredibly exciting segment for this evening where we have the co-founder of Gainline Analytics, Simon Strawn, with us. Simon, thank you so much for your time tonight. How are you? Uh, yeah, very good, Ando. Uh, yeah, very good, thanks. Excellent. What does a normal Sunday look like for you in Gainline Analytics world? Um, it's actually following up on the premiership in the UK, uh, doing some reports for uh, the competition there and then following up leading into the week, um, making sure that we've got every, all of our data collection carrying out um, and just looking uh, into uh, planning for 2022 for some teams, for uh, rugby league, rugby union and some work into Europe. Wow, so much like the British Empire, the sun never sets on game. That's exactly right. It's sports 24-7, so that's the way it works. That's pretty exciting, mate. Well, um, what we've got you here for tonight, we wanted to really just dive deep into the work that Gainline Analytics does, but particularly apply it to an Australian context, because there has been so much positive news about rugby over the last month or so, particularly with some of the news coming out about RA and centralization that we're going to speak about later on within our chat. But we just wanted to take the opportunity to bring you in, pick your brains, and really just try to say the word cohesion as many times as we possibly could within one podcast, because it's seems that that's the way that you get credibility in rugby circles now. Uh, would that sound about right to you, Simon? Well, yeah, it's funny you should say that. I listen to the broadcast these days and it seems to have lost all meaning. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe we could uh, touch on what the meaning should be. Yeah. Why don't we yeah, start? Yeah. Um, can you give us a brief, brief background about who you are? Because a lot of people would know Benny Darwin because of his Wallabies background. They may not know you as a co-founder as well. What's your background? Who are you? How did you get started with sports data analytics and game line analytics? Uh, yes. So um, my background, I, it's it's uh, sort of very long-winded, but... Um, uh, I was originally born in the UK, came to Australia as a young kid, um, actually lived in South Australia, which is obviously not a hotbed of rugby, but uh, being an Anglophile as a kid, um, I, I basically played soccer and, and rugby, um, you know, not at a high level and I wasn't necessarily very good, but what I did do was I, I actually did coaching courses as soon as I could and, and that gave me a sort of an idea around the game and because it was, because rugby was different sport and it was it was not the norm. There was always, I was always asking the question about why you did things, why was it that way? Where, and, and that sort of put me in a different uh, frame of reference when it came to the coaching side. So over time, um, I actually moved to Melbourne um, through work and through that and through coaching, um, I started working in pathways. I started coaching at schools and I ended up uh, working in the um, pathway coaching in Victoria ended up coaching this uh, Victorian schoolboys a few times uh, with some um, pretty reasonable results at the schoolboy champs a couple of times. Ended up uh, head coach at the inaugural season of the Junior Gold Cup. I don't know if you guys remember that, but um, and we had a, um, uh, a 
pretty good group got through to the final and that was sort of a nationwide competition. So um, during that time, I had the opportunity to coach um, a, a lot of young, talented guys that came through the Victorian system, you know, people like Rob Yoda and Rob Valentini and uh, Hunter Paisami and Jordan Ulacy and Sione Tupolotu. So um, through that experience, it's given me the opportunity to sort of be exposed to, uh, you know, young, talented rugby players. But also during that time, I, I managed to pick up um, working with the Wallabies as a performance analyst and also with the Melbourne Rebels. So, so even though sort of coming from fairly um, low rent's not really the right word to use for it, but coming from a, a, a non-high-profile background, uh, I've managed to um, be able to sort of look into the, into the back room of professional rugby and, and sort of get an understanding of it. But coming from, a, from very much a, a different point of view, uh, always asking the question, why is it done that way? Because it's, it was never the norm for me. So it's given me a different view around how the sport works and always asking the question about, you know, why is it so? And so does that then lead into the origins of game line analytics, that questioning uh, approach where you just look at something, look at the way teams are constructed and teams are managing themselves, organisations are managing themselves and thinking, why is it, why do they continue to do things this way when it seems to not be working for them? Yeah, very much so. Because when, when um, I first met Ben in 2000, the end of 2010, when he came on, as the original uh, analyst for the Melbourne Rebels when they first putting the squad together. So I was actually helping him. Uh, we were clipping um, guys from Europe and the NPC and uh, everywhere around Shoot Shield and up in Queensland to put the first Rebels squad together. Um, and, and he sort of had this view around how teams work and, um, and we would have sort of the discussions about that. Then he did a couple of years at the Rebels, went off to Japan, uh, did some coaching there, came back to um, Melbourne in around 2013, said he didn't really want to uh, be involved in professional coaching. He had a he tells this story, but so he won't mind if I say it. But he had a he had a year with Suntory where he was undefeated, but he still got fired. So he said <laughs> professional coaching is not for him. But when he started explaining the concept of his own experience with the Rebel, his own experience with the Brumbies, his own experience with the Wallabies, where he didn't necessarily think he was the best player, but the Wallabies and the Brumbies were still successful. It really gelled with my own personal way that I felt around coaching, around coaching, around relationships, coaching about general play. And so it really gelled. And that's where we started working together around these ideas to try and say, well, how do we measure this? How do we understand um, how teams work from that, that point of view? Because, because normal analytics, normal event data, uh, anyone that sort of knows this stuff, if it's sports code or anything like that, just really codes outcomes of games. It doesn't tell you the why, it just tells you the outcome of like another version of the score. But really, we really wanted to understand like what were the drivers of these things. Okay. And so what that has led to is the emergence of Benny Darwin hitting up nearly every podcast and rugby writing site, basically spreading the gospel of teamwork index and cohesion. So for us lay people or people who maybe haven't spent too much time listening to it and all they've heard is a broadcasters throw around the word cohesion. Can you unpack for the listeners what those two terms, teamwork index and cohesion, refer to and how they relate to the beautiful game of rugby? Yeah, so cohesion really is, when we use the word cohesion, it's around the understanding between players. And when we talk about the understanding, it's the objective understanding between teammates on the field, how well they know how to play with each other. So it's not 
um, I say a psychological cohesion, like social cohesion, do they get on well with each other? Um, it's not that. Do they go off and do painful exercises and stuff like that? It's nothing to do with that. It's not a psychological measure. It's basically uh, if, a, if a player is coming on a certain line of speed, do the, does the guy next to them know what he's going to do in that situation? When two players are under pressure, do they know what's going to happen? When one guy's passing a certain way, does the guy next to him understand what's going to happen? Guy or girl, um, teammate, regardless of who it is. Um, and that's fundamentally what it is. And what we found with all of our research, and that comes from multiple sports, um, that the level of understanding uh, in teams is a is a is a is a stronger predictor than the amount of skill you have in the team. So, regardless of sport, whether it's rugby union, rugby league, AFL, um, um, soccer, um, NFL sports like that, um, it comes across it in sports different dynamics in different ways, but it's still there. But um, um, and a lot of the work comes out of a, a lot of um, um, studies around HR and um, studies around medical teams, air flight crews, um, analysis of uh, Wall Street analysts, um, the transfer of talent. Um, so there's a lot of academic work that's done around understanding talent acquisition, understanding um, 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 the understanding of teams, but it's never really been applied in sport before. And so using our experiences, especially Ben's experiences in sport, taking this other learning, this academic learning outside of sport, and we've tried to apply it in sport, where when we talk about cohesion, we have a set of markers that we measure the, the markers are really a manifestation of, of all these other elements, this research that we've, we've looked at and distilled essentially into a set of markers where TWI, Teamwork Index, is one of these markers. And Teamwork Index is a, is a measurement of the way a squad is put together. The higher your TWI is, the greater capacity you have to produce cohesion during a season, during a game. So then building upon that, um, without giving away too many trade secrets, what would be a couple of general factors that we as punters could be looking for within the teams that we support as I'm wearing my Waratahs stuff right here? What are some general factors that would demonstrate a more cohesive environment? Uh, the biggest one, especially in rugby union, is defence. So um, cohesion manifests itself strongly in defence. So, so it's it's not... When it comes to defence in rugby union, it's not about the individual's ability to make a tackle. Generally, in the point at the end of professional rugby, if you can't tackle, you get found out. There's probably a few exceptions to that particular rule. But ultimately, it's around how the defensive line works. Low cohesion teams defend poorly. Um, they normally have lots of points scored against them. That doesn't necessarily mean that they can't be successful. They basically have to try and outscore the amount of points that they give up. But generally, high cohesion teams defend really well. Um, hashtag defence wins titles. What you'll find is across across rugby union, rugby league, generally the, um, the team that defends the best is normally the the more successful team. So that's one of one of those things. So, so when we talk about cohesion, though, um, just want to emphasize, sort of emphasise this. It's not it's not just about the understanding between the players. And I made that point before. 
we call it the three P's, people, position, and program. So there's an understanding between the people. There's also players understanding between their, to their position or their role. So if you've got a guy who's playing 10 and you put him to 13, there's a different responsibility there. Like 13 is a very, very critical defensive position. If you've got a guy who's playing six and you put him into lock, there's a different role there and that has a different influence um, on the team as well. So, so there's, a, there's a cohesion element to their particular role on the, on the field as well. But then the last P is what we call program and that's game plan. So having an understanding about the way the team works. So if, if you change the way a team is working, uh, the, change the way a team is uh, playing or a defensive structure, for example, that's going to influence the way the team performs. So if you change the way they play, generally there will be a drop in performance while the players are trying to adapt in that way. So 2019, the example with the Brumbies, they, they um, were letting in a lot of points at the beginning of the season because they were playing to a new defensive structure. They finally, they eventually got used to it and then they defended okay. So, so it's those, it, it's other factors other than just how much people play together um, on top of it. It's the whole sort of cohesion uh, equation that comes together. And have you found these sort of principles uh, quite unanimous across all sports? Or are there certain key sports that have taken to these principles more so than others from your experience? Yeah, so generally there will be elements inside most sports. The, I think the, the, where, where, why we have sort of come across this, because we started in rugby, we actually started working with this in rugby league, uh, working with actual teams, but then um, obviously rugby union was the op obviously next one, was that because defence is so critical, uh, sorry, cohesion is so critical to defence, it really stood out. Um, um, and, and that's why it was so obvious to us. And then you take that and you can, then you start looking at other sports. So, for example, in uh, um, a sport like rugby union, rugby league is that what we call a 180-degree invasive sport. You have a line attacking a defensive, attacking line, attacking a defensive line. Where 360 degree sports like AFL, football, uh, netball, basketball, for example, is slightly different. The dynamics different because the way attack and defense works is different. Um, water polo is different, for example, because defense is individually oriented, but attack is team oriented. So the dynamic between where the cohesion is important is different in that particular sport. NFL is different again, where You've say you've got the um, the quarterback to a wide receiver is almost a closed skill. It's a one-on-one -on -one relationship, but the defensive line and the offensive line is where the cohesion sits the most. How that group works together to say to protect the quarterback is the most critical part um, of that. So there's there's dynamics of within teams in a different way. So. Um, and basketball is another example. There's only five people on the court, so cohesion can actually be um, created very, very quickly um, uh, and play 82 games a season. So you can have a really bad team at the beginning, you know, game one, by the end of the season, you can be killing it. And that's why in basketball, um, it doesn't take much to buy the best player in the league and, and be really good within a season or within two seasons, where we know in rugby, you can get the best players but still be poor. Just touching on the defence, Simon, I know um, 
when Ben spoke about this a while ago, he said that one of the most interchangeable positions is the open side flanker. Uh, normally they don't have as much to do with a lot of the other positions in rugby union um, in that defensive setup. Is there one position that stuck out, I guess, as being more influential than not, uh, whether it be hooker, fly half or scrum half perhaps, or is it more a case of having a defensive organizer uh, like Dwayne Vermeulen or Tavita Karandrani? Is that more of a bigger impact to the team? Uh, it's not necessarily about a defensive organiser. Um, uh, I mean, rugby league, rugby league, uh, as an example, the defensive organiser is often the, the fullback. Um, and we know, for example, with Manly this year, when they haven't had their first choice um, fullback, they often faltered in defence. Um, but um, it's more around where the critical points of um, defending is. And so 13, so through the centres is often uh, really, really critical and having a level of understanding because outside centre is one of the hardest positions to defend because you've got stuff happening on inside and stuff happening on the outside. So so that, that's a really critical spot because um, so through the centres, if you get if you get the call wrong through the centres, you put pressure on the people inside and put pressure on the people outside. One of the reasons why the flanker, generally you've got the seam defence is is critical, but you've you've got a, a reasonable amount of cover for that. But it's really in that that set piece and um, out wide is why having people, uh, that combination like the um, centres is really really critical. But in saying that, say the tight five for example, tight five is almost and I don't want to devalue scrum coaching, it's almost like a, um, a closed skill in a way. You train enough, you can get a scrum working reasonably quickly. It's a bit like a line-out. But those same five, five people in the scrum are also the people that are defending rucks and balls. And so if there are actually low relationships in that group, potentially you are susceptible around ruck and ball defence as well. And likewise with the back three, you have poor, you know, you have lower relationships in the back three, you'd be susceptible for kick and chase. So, so teams that have weaknesses can be susceptible, susceptible if those weaknesses are actually um, attacked. If you have weaknesses and no one actually attacks those weaknesses, then you don't actually see them. Yep. Yeah, that's well, there's so many thoughts coming through my head here <laughs> about some of the Wallabies' recent performances and how that's uh, played out. But what we might do is actually move to the Wallabies a little bit. Um, so in Dave Rennie's tenure, he's used around about 45 players to date with an additional 30 players that have come through the squad at various points. So the first, there are two questions to this. Number one, does just being in the squad and in a Wallabies training environment help at all with players kind of integrating them into that environment when they're on the field so they build those relationships and those cohesive uh, networks between the players and a program that they're a part of so that's number one and then number two if they had some game time even if it was minimal would that then be vastly different to a player who had just been in the world of his training squad uh yeah so if they're in the if they're in the environment that that can only be helpful um because and it goes back to the those three p's that i mentioned before if you if you're in and you are training the defensive patterns, you are training the attacking patterns, it's starting to sink into your um, long-term memory, um, then that's only beneficial. And this is, uh, a, a, when I talk about, when we talk about TWI, high TWI teams, it, what are the factors of that is? You've got basically the higher the TWI, the longer the people have been in the group. And so, so the longer they've had there, to, the longer they've been there for the patterns to become embedded 
in there. So if guys are training in the squad, uh, training in the environment, it'll only be good for them because they will understand when they actually step onto the pitch what the patterns are. The only downside to that is if they are playing a different pattern to what they played at Super Rugby, as soon as the pressure comes on, and we know this from research, as soon as the pressure comes on, they'll revert back to what they know and their long-term memory, and it might be different. So this is one of the advantages that potentially having a Super Rugby um, coaches and potentially the forwards at the moment with um, Dan McKellar. Um, with the Brumbies in the group, if they're getting to do some Brumby things, what they fall back on is what some of the guys already know. So there's a potentially positive, I don't know what they're doing, but um, um, if you can fall back to what you already know, that's a positive thing. Like we know, I know, for example, speaking to people like Stuart Lancaster at Leinster, he says he has to train the island out of the Leinster guys when they come back after the Six Nations because he has to get another way of doing things yeah. so they can start doing the Leinster way again. What was the second question? Second question. Uh, you actually answered it to begin with. Really? Um, insofar as would the input, would, would the cohesion of a player or their input be vastly different if they got a bit of game time ahead of players who were just in a squad? Yeah. So the really important thing about game, yeah, game time. Um, ideally, in the perfect world, in the perfect world, you would want that game time. You would want the the guys to have game time outside of the environment. So in the perfect utopian world, they would have had a game time in Australia A, or they would have had game time together in Super Rugby, or they would have had game time together in a third tier comp. And so when they debut, they've already played. Yep, yep, yep. And yeah, there's, I might jump ahead then to, because that actually connects really well with the question that we want to ask about some of the developments and changes that are happening within Australia, because there has been some news dropping in the last week or so pointing towards the potential centralization of rugby in Australia. And whilst that's a big term and some of the details have not yet been released, it seems like Rugby Australia will now be having, well, from November, likely be having a stronger role in appointing coaches, strength and conditioning coaches, potentially even moving players across clubs where there are gaps or surpluses at varying clubs. Now, looking through your gainline analytics lens, what benefits or pitfalls are you seeing with this direction that Rugby Australia seems to be moving in? Um, well, benefits, if there's a singular system, if the program is the same, so if people are moving between and potentially start moving between different organizations and they don't have to relearn things that's better um, if there's a way of um, centralizing contracts so that um, um, like for example the old NR, with the old NRC um, guys would come into the NRC they would be contracted after super rugby so instead of playing NRC and then playing Super Rugby, so you would progress from NRC into Super Rugby, it was actually six months the opposite way. And so you wouldn't necessarily get any benefit out of it. So, so as long as centralisation actually enhances the pathway and enhances and develops that level of understanding through the system, then excellent. Um, if, if, if centralisation is a way of um, saving money, um, then, then you know, potentially it, it might be a hindrance or potentially they might save money and enhance cohesion and develop the system. So maybe it's a win-win, which will be positive. 
we definitely want more wins in Australian rugby. It's been going good in the last month. Like that upwards trajectory to continue. Yeah. Uh, so looking back at the Wallabies now, we've had the pretty high-profile return of Quade Cooper and Samu Karevi back into the Wallabies setup, and they have had an immediate impact upon the team and upon the team's results. Now, would you be able to speak to that? Because in my mind bringing these players in from an external situation that they've been been in, they haven't been a part of the Wallabies program for the last few years, and yet they've been hugely successful. Is that simply a skill and quality uh, injection that seems to have counteracted what you've previously been saying about cohesion? Um, no. <laughs> no. So, so, this is, so this is the thing, is that so the Wallabies are coming from a really low base at yeah. the moment. And so by adding... Quade Cooper or adding Sammy Karevi, like who came first and played against New Zealand and uh, Australia, you know, Australia lost that game. The score was better. But Australia over uh, this particular year has been slowly getting better. The numbers have been getting better. The selection has been quite consistent. Mm-hmm. So the game that the, the Wallabies markers in the second game where um, Karevi played against New Zealand compared to the first game were better and Australia did better. New Zealand's numbers in that second game were worse than the first game and the score reflected that shift in the shift from New Zealand's numbers going down and Australia's numbers going up. And so if you look at the collective, the result was reflected in the, uh, the result was reflective of the markers. In that way, so um, Karevi coming back in that there was no signal either way that he made a difference to Australia losing by less in that. And then you come back to the next game. Then the next game, Quade comes in. So, other than the back three, other than the relationship between Tom Banks and Len Ikitao, because they play at the Brumbies and the two Rebels guys, Quade Cooper and Sam McGrevy had the next highest level of previous games played together in that back line. Yes, it was a while ago. It was quite a while ago. But they would have had, you know, a fair amount of training to remind each other of, of that. So, so there is that previous relationship between those two guys in um, for that game. And so... Um, I don't, does any of you remember Quaid's second pass in that game? No, not to that level. Of yeah, I think he was passing to, if you remember, watch the replay, his second pass, I think he was passing to Drew Mitchell. Anyway, he hit the grass. So he was he was a bit of passing to ghosts. So he was still trying to find his feet in, in the game. But um, a couple of little short passes to Summer Grevy uh, a bit later on, a nice little pass to... Um, uh, Lenny Katow a little bit later on. So, um, uh, so overall in the tri- in the, the rugby championship against the markers against New Zealand, against South Africa, and against um, Argentina, Australia actually only plus one game ahead of where they should have been for their markers against the opposition, and that was the uh, thirty to. 30 to 15, 30 to 17 game against South Africa. Yep. So, 
So, so are you basically, sorry to jump in, are you basically just undercutting all um, journalists who just point to the return of Golden Boy or our new Lord and Saviour, Quade Cooper, and saying that actually it's a reflection of overall team improvement rather than the injection of one player? Yeah, well, I am, because I think it's doing a disservice to the stability that's in the rest of the group and the overall improvement of the rest of the group to lay it all on um, Quade Cooper and Sammy Karevi's shoulders. Now, Sammy Karevi, like, he's got a very specific skill set that he provides. He's a big body and he bends the line, and that's his, that's his particular um, skill set associated with that. And there's no doubt Quade has matured as a player, but but it's, it, two people in a, in a rugby team don't necessarily make a difference. Hey, I'm going to ask the question, who was it last week that said that Australia uh, had two decisive victories against South Africa? Yeah, that was me. And then I realised it was one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So in the first game, um, so that game... Uh, uh, like South Africa left 18 points on the field. They missed 11 points and they dropped the ball over the yeah, line. Pollard didn't have his kicking And there was at least one yellow card. So, yeah. yeah. So when you put it, at, when you look at it like that, a penalty in the 82nd minute, if the penalty was, you know, 10 metres back, maybe they wouldn't have got it. When you put it, when you look at it that way, you, you really have got to say, well, um, um, how would have that game played out? What would have the perception of the game been? If it if if you know two or three of those kicks went another way, if Quade missed one and Pollard got a couple of, it would have been a completely different scenario to it. Mm. And so, really, the, the by the numbers, the games played out the way they should have. Bar the um, that that definite definitive win against South Africa, which Australia has a really good record against South Africa, and the rural home games as well. So, what I'm saying is. Australia's numbers aren't that spectacular, but they're getting better. They're all home games. Let's not get ahead of ourselves, but it's all pointing in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. Looking really, looking really at that change you go, Mitch. when we when we like those first few games we had Noah Alessio at 10, and then we bring in Quade Cooper and then we shift to James O'Connor. Now both of James O'Connor and Quade Cooper have a lot more experience than Noah Alessio, but Noah's been playing a lot more with some of the other players in Super Rugby this year. Does the numbers change dramatically between the three of those guys? No, because this is the thing. So it's so when you because ultimately it's a collective. So when you change, when you look at one player to another player, that's that's only those players. But those players then have a relationship to the other players around them because, of course, after the you know two three four phases it's whoever's standing next to everybody and so ultimately as soon as you, you, you when you change one player you basically change that one player's relationship to everyone else on the field so it, 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 it by changing one player you effectively change the relationship to everyone else um, and so it has a has a big impact so if you were to just still go and okay what's the strongest what's the strongest combination from this super rugby team What's the strongest combination from that super rugby team? And put them all together, there'll still be issues in the team because guys still haven't played together. Yeah. And what we do know is, regardless of how strong a team is, and I, this is a cliche, you're only strong as the weakest link. It's, and this is when it comes to um, 
defends. If you have high, what we call defensive gaps, we've got a number of different markers, markers for strength, markers for weakness. If you have high defensive gaps, you defend poorly. And so ultimately you have to try and outscore your defensive weaknesses. And Australia's never had an issue with scoring. So over the decline of Australian rugby, um, um, Australia's scoring hasn't necessarily had an issue. Like it's dropped a little bit, but it hasn't like dropped dramatically. It's the defence that's had that's been the issue, um, and, and that's that's reflective of the drop in cohesion of um, the Wallabies over time. You just get my brain juices stirring. I absolutely love it. And there's so many thoughts and questions that come up from this. And you mentioned Australia A earlier. And this seems to be tying into the um, ongoing conversation amongst us rugby fans about the need for something else just beneath that super rugby level. Uh, so we had it as an NRC. Prior to that, it was an ARC. Um, there's been conversation about Rugby Australia not being able to afford an NRC-style competition in the coming years so that might revitalise the Australia A program. So looking within there, that kind of broad ballpark, is this desire for an NRC-like competition a strong idea for improving Australian rugby. Uh, would it be beneficial? And what would the structure actually be considering we've got players coming from five different um, competitions, well, many competitions across the country? Um, so, yeah, what it would look like, do people want it? Can people afford it? Is from my perspective, from our perspective, is not, is not the right question. Do we need it is the question. I actually put this tweet out, this is a while ago, and people were talking about um, private equity coming into um, Australian rugby, and, and I, it was something along the lines of, uh, it would be great if private equity understood that a third tier is important to get return on investment in the first tier, in tier one of it. So it doesn't matter if people like it, it doesn't matter if people can afford it. It's to understand why it needs to be there, what it does, what it does to allow um, development of the Super Rugby franchises to create stability and create high levels of understanding in that, in them, to improve the TWI, improve the in-game cohesion, which then flows into the Wallabies. Because we know when people win, and like the last month has been fantastic, everyone loves rugby again. Yeah. And so that's the, that. That seems to be the the driving factor, um, not necessarily about um, how many, not necessarily about how many um, uh, franchises we have. It's all about at the moment Wallabies winning, and so and, and ultimately uh, uh, we can you know we can still have five Super Rugby um, franchises and the Wallabies winning if they are structured correctly and if we have a functioning third tier because it's the third tier that creates, um, you know, I talked about before about the, the gaps. The gaps will kill you. It'll kill you defensively. That's what gets rid of the gaps ultimately into Super Rugby and Super Rugby gets, get, gets rid of the gaps for the Wallabies. That's why New Zealand Rugby is, is a great system. It's built on that and that's built into the All Blacks. That's why, unfortunately, South African rugby is not like that anymore because the players just get stripped and go to Europe. But they used to have Vodacom Cup that would go into Curry Cup, that would go into Super Rugby, that would go into the Springboks. And so um, in, in 2007, with their Rugby World Cup, 
um, winning team with the Bulls and the Sharks. They just had this great system that the players just flowed through into that. And so the third tier, so whatever the third tier looks like, it doesn't have to be an NRC. It could be Super Rugby A programs or it could be um, Tours of Europe. It doesn't, ultimately it doesn't matter. It just needs to be, there needs to be a third tier to allow that building of understanding, building of cohesion to get stability in the Super Rugby teams. So once they have that, then you'll have um, potentially five Queensland Reds teams that will slowly become competitive against New Zealand province because at the moment they're not because they, they're just not competitive from a cohesion standpoint. So against each other in Super Rugby AU was fantastic. Everyone was loving it. But of course, you go against five New Zealand provinces that are naturally high cohesion and that's how Super Rugby Trans Tasman turns out. So we might just go through some of the, I guess, rapid fire questions. We've got a fair few in from the fans and it'd be great to get, obviously, um, a slightly more intelligent answer than what the three of us can muster. Um, coming in first uh, from Hugh Tindall, he wanted to get in touch, uh, looking at how important is cohesion in predicting the result of a game? And he's looking at it, I guess, in context to the other sort of domain. So is it something where it takes up sort of 60% of the discussion where things like weather, the referee and home ground advantage um, take up the rest or how influential is it in actually deciding an outcome? Um, well, that's how influential. Oh, well, from our perspective, very. So um, in like super rugby, that's just been like we, we basically for each game, when we, when we work with teams, we provide um, context to performance. So if you're going to win or you're going to lose, to allow them. So if they're, if they're always going to lose the game, well, don't, don't make any rash decisions because you're going to lose anyway because your cohesion was so low and you've got to build or, or vice versa. And so because of that, we, we predict outcomes. And our outcomes is just as good across rugby union, rugby league and other sports, as good if not better than the, the market. And so... So that doesn't leave much left over for all the other things, coaching, tactics, weather, home ground advantage. We have a home ground advantage um, metric involved in our, in our prediction algorithm. Okay. Take that into account and we know it's different. So for example, in Australian stadiums, the crowd's not so close, doesn't have a greater influence on the referee. In English stadiums, they've got these dinky tight little stadiums where the crowd's virtually sitting on the game. Mm. We know home ground advantage is much higher than it is in Australia so that's that that's included in that that particular factor so so and like I said sort of in my opening um statement that cohesion is a is a much greater determiner of outcome than skill alone so so basically has a really really high influence on it well that's interesting then because um Hugh goes on as well just to ask if it can degrade over time and he, he cites the spring box as an example where obviously super high cohesion and had a bit of that Stormers forward pack and yeah. they'd had a lot of time together um, for that World Cup final. But then in the 18 months between tests where they then go and play Georgia and then the Lions, is their lack of game time, is that actually um, decreasing their cohesion or does it stay about balanced? Because it's yeah, the same so, group. Yeah, it's a really good question. And this is new, like this is really new to us. So we... For, for us, the way we measure, we, measure, we, do, we do measure cohesion over different timeframes. Like the game yesterday is more important than the game two years ago in, in the simplest form. And what, the, what Springboks didn't really have, they didn't really have a, a, a high amount of games 
over the last 18 months. Yes, they played the Lions. Yes, they played a game against Georgia. Um, they played a B team against Argentina um, leading up in the first game of the, the, Trino, uh, the, the rugby championship. Um, and it sort of put the British and Irish Lions in a bit of context, actually. But, but so what we're, what we're looking at here, because we don't really have another example of look, when does the test team not play for 18 months, is around what we call recency. They haven't, because they haven't played together much, it's starting to devalue of that level of understanding they've had. But, but ultimately for us, everything we do, it's come, what do the numbers say? What is outcome it, is it giving us? Um, we have to find a greater sample size to say, where else has this occurred? How can we test it? But at the moment, that's sort of what we're thinking, the fact that um, they hadn't played together, that their recency is low. But then, as you can see, they, they started putting it together over the um, rugby championship and then they end up beating New Zealand. So, so they're potentially, um, the, you know, they were slowly getting it back together over yeah. the course of the tournament. And that factors in it. You have touched on this already, but Craig got in touch um, just to ask, I guess, about the difference between the Springboks and Australia. Just in terms of the TWA numbers, was it obviously in uh, Springboks' favour, but was it by a really large amount or was it tighter than we probably think? Yeah. So just to clarify, so TWA is a measurement of how the squads put together and then we just have what we call the in-season markers or in-game markers, which are sort of a different set of markers. But... Um, so for the first um, uh, for the first game, yeah. So so basically, by the first game, the expectation was the Springboks were going to win, um, and um, and and that basically didn't pan out. But um, uh, but we we sort of talked about that and the, the expectation of the game and the way the game played out, two different things. Uh, but that's why that second game, and I said that Australia were plus one for the for the tournament. Um, still, the expectation was the spring. The expectation was a Springboks win, uh, but it was close because the reason why I say it was close is uh, Australia has always had a reasonable good record against South Africa at home. And just again, touching on the rugby championship, John Corbett got in touch on Twitter as well, um, looking at uh, the players that played in Japan and just sort of comparing the Australian ones, which we've mentioned, but also um, Bowden Barrett and Brody Retallick for New Zealand. And just wondering why the Australian players that came back from Japan seem to be quite refreshing, add a lot to the team, and why the New Zealand ones perhaps didn't have the same uh, injection. If there was any reason as to why that might be the case, uh, nothing springs to mind from a if I put my cohesion hat on, other than other than. Uh, more everyone's focus because with all due respect to Quaid, um, Australia won, he was new, everyone's put his focus on him, he just did his job. He didn't necessarily blitz it. Sammy Kirby's a different story because he's very he stands out as a player, he bends the line and does some really good things, but still um, um, I'm not too sure what people expect. I'm not too sure what people expect these guys to do, but um, you know, of course, Quite as a player, like he did his job and he did a good job, but he wasn't as if he was, um, you know, Marcus Smith from the weekend. If anyone saw the highlights yeah, from Arnhem, so, <laughs> so yeah. On that same, um, on that same kind of point around the systems and why Australia, the Australian based or the Japanese based Australian players came back and performed a bit better than the New Zealand ones. Does that really put? Uh, I guess, a uh, spotlight on the system that New Zealand has 
in terms of development and cohesion in that those players have come out of, like come into the New Zealand All Black system from Japan. So they're not as, I guess, around it for a year, whereas Australia, the players coming in from Japan have more of an impact on the team around them? Uh, I'm not, I'm not really, uh, yeah, I'm not sure, but in, in saying this, so one of the things we found, high cohesion systems allow players to play to capacity. So you put a player, a young player in a high cohesion environment like the Crusaders or like Leicester or like the Melbourne Storm, they will play absolutely to their capacity. Um, young players in a low cohesion environment, which is the majority of the Australian super rugby provinces, they don't, they don't, aren't allowed to play the capacity because they are in the politest possible way playing with chaos all the time. Um, and that might sound a bit harsh. Um, and so, so Bowden Barrett stepping back into New Zealand, it may not look like he's actually standing out because everyone's actually playing to a really high level. And he, he may actually still be playing to a higher level, but then so is, so is everyone else. And that's not to say that, that, that um, just to reiterate what I said before, I mean, Sammy Karevi sort of stands out as a player of what he does. It doesn't necessarily mean that he would not be doing the same thing if he'd stayed with the Queensland Reds, um, you know, for the last few seasons. In fact, he would probably be doing what he's doing now if not even more, if he stayed with the Queensland Reds, because the Reds are the highest cohesion environment team in Australia by the nature of the, what they've done um, over the last four or five years. And just speaking specifically to that, um, just to unpack it, that is a progression of their team from kind of schoolboy level into NRC, then up through the Reds. So we're looking at like Liam Wright, Harry Wilson, um, Fraser McWright, those, those guys coming through together? Oh yeah, absolutely. So it's it's um, and it's even the coach yeah. coaching some of those guys at Queensland Country and then coming through, just like um, Scott Robertson coached some of his Crusaders at um, you know, New Zealand under twenties um, coming through. So um, it comes back to the, the sort of the three P's, the program part of cohesion I mentioned before. So um, there's a high degree of understanding within the group. Um, not only from a from a people perspective, but also from a program perspective, because the coaches had so much time um, with them, and they used it. They used it in a really good way. So they had, uh, um, you know, in very simplistic terms, the forwards with one NRC team and the backs with the other NRC team. So it's a bit like um, the Melbourne Storm, for example. Um, they have two feeder teams. The left edge plays with one feeder team, and the right edge plays with another feeder team. So when they come in defensively they're really strong because the guys play together in that way so it's really set up that well set up very well that way and and and, and the, the the queensland reds who are you know the second youngest group that have the highest cohesion so you know they're on a real upward trend in that regard and, and that's something that um you know we we've been seeing for the last few years in that regard and you know four years ago they were performing really really poorly only because they had really low numbers and sticking on that point, we mentioned it earlier about Dan McKellar being the Brumbies coach and now the Fords coach for the Wallabies. Does it somehow feel like we're trying to trick the system a little bit by having the Brumbies coach who's picking, particularly for the spring tour coming up, majority of Brumbies players, uh, bringing them into the Wallabies where we could be picking a more red-centric side who have played more together, who potentially have higher cohesion? 
Well, considering cohesion is made up of a number of different elements, and if tricking your system is getting a group of guys together that, that can play a certain way under the coach and the coach knows that that works, then that's not tricking the system. So uh, by that logic, the 2015 Rugby World Cup final was tricking the system by Michael Checker picking a majority of Waratahs players into the Wallabies to make the final. So that worked. Um, so ultimately, it doesn't matter which way you choose to do it as long as you get high levels of understanding through the group. And if that's through the program, it's through the program. If it's through the players, it's through the players. So I, ideally, you would want through all of it that, you, you know, ideally you have a program in place and a system in place. The last thing you want to do as a coach is what we call the third way. You don't want, you don't want to have um, players who play a certain way, a coach who coached a certain way, you bring them together and then try and do it a different way because then no one's really sure what's going on. So, um, and, and that, you know, that sometimes happens. Well, I think remembering back to the success of the Waratahs in 2014 is a perfect way to finish our interview <laughs> with you. So, <laughs> thank you so much for your time, Simon. Um, can we just, as we finish, if people want to hear more from you, learn more about what you guys do at Gainline Analytics, how can they get in touch? Um, yeah, well, they can follow us on Twitter at GL, uh, GL um, Analytics on Twitter, um, our website, www.gainline.biz. Uh, we've got a uh, e-newsletter uh, that I publish, I try to publish uh, uh, as regularly as possible. Um, so it's, it's, so all our social media, LinkedIn, Facebook. So I run all of that. Um, if Ben was running it, he'd be tweeting about his going to 7-Eleven to buy uh, chocolate for his kids um so that's why that's that's why i've banned him uh from doing that so um yeah so it's basically through our social media we've got an e-newsletter and then um uh yeah so follow us that way so um we tend we tend to not necessarily publish too much of the sort of meat and potatoes yeah. just because essentially people pay for us um, yeah. pay for that from us but we sort of put a few obviously put a few things out but um uh, one of the positives about you know i was keen to talk about tonight because sort of the cohesion word is 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 out there quite a bit so i wanted to obviously try and give it a little bit more meaning um and hopefully so when when it's heard people a little bit more um think about it a little bit more than yeah. um than the 42 times we hear it uh, in rugby games these days so <laughs> maybe we'll have to tap uh, Morgan Tirunui on a shoulder and just be like mate come on what are you talking about got to, got to get it right here <laughs> uh, but either way Simon thank you so much for your time hope you have a wonderful week and it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show thanks guys pleasure well, we're getting to the end of the pod. So thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for sticking with us up to this point. Um, it is wonderful to be able to talk with an absolute genius of the game like Simon Strawn and learn all the ways that I'm an absolute goose in things that I might have said about the first South African game when I was just spouting rubbish from my lips. <laughs> Definitely wasn't embarrassing, but regardless, it uh, genuinely was incredible to hear from him. So again, thank you, Simon, for being on. Uh, Mitch, thank you for being here. Absolute pleasure having you on, mate. Awesome. Thank you. Great pod and, this week, gentlemen. Oh, it's been good. And Rev, what do you got up to this week, mate? What do you have coming up? 
Um, I've got to start getting my hair styled like James O'Connor just so I can play the role in the next uh, docu-series, I think. That'll be the, <laughs> the, the next the challenge ad. I've got. got the sorted, just get the hair yeah. sorted. Uh, the goal kicking's already settled. Just yep. got to get the hair. <laughs> Picks or it doesn't happen. And you got to practice your deep breathing routines as well Ooh. to make sure you're centered. Okay. Yes. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Have a wonderful week and we will see you next Monday. Bye.